Hi, it's Jen. Just a reminder that news is rapidly changing, and especially with elections, news moves fast. So things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. So be sure to get all the latest news on your local NPR station or visit npr.org. And of course, visit us at the1a.org for our latest conversations. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, and today we bring you our election roundup. Let's get into it. For weeks, Republicans have predicted a red wave would wash over the U.S. this midterm cycle. Well, it's Wednesday, and the land is pretty dry. Control of Congress is still up in the air, with both the Senate and the House too close to call. But many Democratic incumbents outperformed expectations. The party even flipped a GOP seat in Pennsylvania, where Democrat John Fetterman beat Republican opponent Donald Trump endorsed Mehmet Oz. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do. And we had that conversation across every one of those counties. And tonight, that's why... I'll be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. We check in on that race in Pennsylvania, as well as Michigan, Florida, and others later on. And a reminder that NPR uses the Associated Press for called races, so we're going with the wins they've projected. Here to help us out, Reed Wilson. He's the editor-in-chief at Pluribus News. That's a national outlet following state politics. Reed, welcome back to 1A. Hope you had a few hours of sleep. Uh, just a few. How are you, Jen? <laughs> Doing okay. Let's get some top line reaction. So Republicans and even some Democrats were expecting a midterm shellacking, and that's not what happened. As I said, control of both the House and the Senate are still up in the air, but where are things leaning right now? Well, right now it looks like Democrats are on track to have at least 49 seats in the U.S. Senate. They could have as many as 51, depending on a couple of races in Nevada, where an incumbent Democrat trails by a narrow margin with a ton of ballots left to be counted. Uh, Nevada is a very heavy mail-in and uh, drop-off state, uh, so expect a lot of ballots to count there. And then, you know, it wouldn't be an election in which the Senate was up for grabs if we didn't uh, talk about a Georgia runoff, and that's what looks like may happen. Uh, Right now, Senator Raphael Warnock is up by a little under one percentage point over uh, former uh, NFL running back Herschel Walker. Neither of them are close to 50% of the vote, only about 2% left to be counted. If they don't get to 50, they face each other in in a December runoff, and what would be more fitting than just an absolute rerun of the 2020 elections, uh, which were, of course, decided by those Georgia runoff elections that happened the following January? What do we know about voter turnout so far? Who went to the polls? Well, the electorate was older and whiter than it was in 2020, which is no surprise. That is typical of uh, midterm elections when voter turnout tends to be lower. It, Early turnout reports were really mixed across the board. I mean, there were, um, you know, in, in places like Georgia, they they smashed through old records. Uh, we saw the same thing in parts of Pennsylvania and Arizona and uh, places basically everywhere there was a competitive race. On the other hand, we saw lower than average turnout 
in places like Detroit, uh, in Iowa, uh, in, in effectively anywhere where there wasn't a competitive race, where people didn't have a really compelling reason to head to the polls. So, um, it, it, you know, we still have to sort of canvas and, and figure out uh, who turned out and, uh, well, as much as we can extrapolate how they voted. Um, but this appears to be a pretty typical midterm election following the trend of uh, the last few elections in which we've seen turnout generally rise. Um, it's not quite clear to me that we're going to hit the all-time record for, or the modern record for midterm turnouts, but we're going to be pretty close. At the end of the day, how many Democratic incumbents lost their seats with the races we know so far? Well, if we're talking about the Senate, no one has lost yet. Um, there are still uh, – Senator Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada is the only incumbent who is trailing uh, at the moment. Um, there's, i got to caveat that. Still plenty of votes to count in Arizona where Senator Mark Kelly leads his Republican opponent and uh, in, in Georgia where Warnock leads uh, Walker. In the House, there have been remarkably few changes, uh, remarkably few uh, uh, members of Congress who have actually lost their seats. Um, one in Florida, Congressman Al Al Lawson lost a member versus member district in which he was drawn in uh, to a much more heavily Republican seat against a fellow incumbent. Uh, and then uh, a congressman in um, in New Jersey, uh, Tom Malinowski, lost his reelection to a, a former top leader of the, uh, of the state legislature there, Tom Kane Jr., uh, the son of a, a former governor and, and Tom Kane Sr., who was also the head of the 9-11 Commission. So um, not a lot of members have lost. Uh, Congressman Steve Shabbat is a Republican in uh, Cincinnati. Looks like he's trailing. Uh, Congresswoman Lauren Bo- uh, Boebert in Colorado, one of the uh, arch-conservative members of Marjorie Taylor Greene's crowd, uh, is trailing her Democratic opponent. I don't think the AP has called that race yet. But by and large, there are just not a lot of incumbents uh, who have lost this year, which is remarkable after so many cycles in which we saw a wave for Democrats and a wave for Republicans. This is just kind of status quo. Well, in addition to the House and Senate, 36 governorships were also up for grabs. What are your big takeaways so far from the results of the governor races? You know, something somebody said to me late last night, uh, which is very true, the hardest thing in American politics is to knock off a sitting governor. And so far, we have not seen a single governor uh, lose their seat. Uh, Going back to Nevada, Governor Steve Sisolak is probably the closest. He's down by about five percentage points to his Republican rival. He may lose, but in pretty much every swing state, the incumbent governor won. Ron DeSantis in Florida, Brian Kemp in Alabama, uh, in, in Georgia, excuse me, Mike DeWine in Ohio, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. Um, and when we talk about the Democrats who won, uh, Kathy Hochul uh, won in New York, uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Tony Evers uh, in Wisconsin, Tim Waltz in Minnesota. You know, across the nation, it looks like the, the, the I mean, the power of incumbency for a governor is incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Now, in the open seats, Democrats picked up two governorships in states that we knew they were going to pick up: Massachusetts and Maryland, two very blue states. Governor by very popular Republican governors who were retiring. Uh, Republicans in both states nominated Trump fans. They weren't going to win in in big blue states. Um, 
On the other hand, uh, in Arizona, there's another close race there. Uh, Katie Hobbs, the Secretary of State, very narrowly leading Carrie Lake, a former television anchor out there, with about two-thirds of the vote in. Hobbs is only up 12,000 votes. Again, a lot of votes left to be counted in Arizona. But, you know, there is really only one Republic, or one uh, governor in jeopardy, uh, and that's uh, Steve Sisolak in Nevada. Um, other than that, you know, re- Republicans still have a chance to pick up an open seat in Oregon. Uh, Republican, I should say, Democratic Governor Laura Kelly in Kansas is not a hundred percent lock, but she's ahead by about a point and a half with the vast majority of votes, almost all the votes counted. Um, so, you know, in general, mm-hmm. a very good night for incumbent governors. It, it, it's funny, Jen. I was looking at the exit polls earlier. This electorate is angry. They do not like either party. They think both parties are extreme. Uh, Both parties have net unfavorable ratings. Uh, Both President Biden and former President Trump are deeply unfavorable. And yet voters still elected a lot of incumbents. I mean, there are just not a lot of people who are running for re-election who lost. Goat tweets, for the sake of sane political conversation, I'm thrilled Lauren Boebert possibly lost her seat. We want to put emphasis on possibly there that race has not been called. JK tweets, the mainstream media told us all about the red wave, more like a ripple, never listen to the polls. And Walter tweets, living in Ohio, our state has been gerrymandered so bad, it severely kills any desire to vote when you know it won't matter. We'll get to Ohio a little later in the hour. Read five election deniers were running for secretaries of state this year in Minnesota, Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, and New Mexico. Overall, how did the election denier wing do? Uh, not so well. Let's see. In Arizona, uh, Mark Fincham, the state representative out there who was the election denier, uh, lost his re-election – or lost his election. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say re-election. Um, in uh, – let's see. In Michigan, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson uh, won her re-election bid. So this is this has not been uh, a, a great year for sort of the election denialists. I, I should say, by the way, the Arizona race has not been called yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, for Adrian Fontes, the Democratic candidate. Um, in Wisconsin, uh, incumbent Doug LaFollette is is t- virtually tied with his uh, Republican challenger. LaFollette has been the Democratic Secretary of State for oh gosh, maybe longer than I have been alive. Uh, (laughs) He's been there forever. Uh, But uh, overall, it looks like the most likely uh, member of, call it the election denialist caucus to win, is Jim Marchant in Nevada. Uh, About 80% of the vote is in there. He is leading his Democratic challenger by about one percentage point. Um, And and just to give you a sense of how narrow that margin is, one percentage point is less than 10,000 votes with still 20% to go. Lots of mail-in ballots, Lots of drop box ballots, which is how a lot of the unions try to get their their people to vote in Nevada. Um, so you know these races are still in flux, but it has not been a, a sweep or even in, in a, a particularly good night uh, for the the election deniers on the ballot for Secretary of State. Mike tweets: Sadly, in Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders beat Chris Jones, the most qualified candidate for governor since Bill Clinton. Sanders refused interviews and spent her time complaining about. Biden. People here voted based on party, not qualifications. 
And we also asked you what we should focus on when the new Congress is in session. One 1A texter writes, integrity of politicians, getting back to normalcy, help with unbiased news and reporting. Another says, do more to engage the right wing and turn their arguments back on them. And the economy, focus on the fact that when Republicans are in charge, the only ones who have ever benefited from their efforts are the wealthy. Coming up, we head to the states with check-ins and analysis from Pennsylvania and Florida. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw, if you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get back to our election roundup with this tweet from Carolyn, who says, The sun is shining in southwest Pennsylvania with our first African-American woman, Summer Lee, going to Congress for the first time in the history of Pennsylvania, homeboy John Fetterman flipping a Senate seat, and Josh Shapiro as our next governor protecting reproductive and voting rights. So let's head to Pennsylvania. Again, that's where Democrat John Fetterman beat Mehmet Oz for a Senate seat last night. When a producer, Michelle Harvin, spoke to voters in, Pencil- in Philadelphia last night, here's Monica who says women's rights are top of mind for her. Women's rights are just really important to me. So I don't really know how how everyone else feels about it. And that makes me, it's going to be disappointing to see how people voted and if women's rights are not on the on top of their agenda. Joining us to talk about it is Chris Potter. He's the government editor with WESA in Pennsylvania. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. So how big of a surprise is this Fetterman win? Uh, you know, I, it's not surprising that he won. The margin is pretty tight. It's about three percentage points or about 150,000 votes at this point. Um, it is surprising to me that it was pretty clear early in the evening that this is how it was going to go. Um, before midnight, uh, it was it was pretty obvious that Fetterman was going to win this thing. Although I understand that uh, Dr. Oz did not seat until just a little bit ago this morning. Um, so the outcome, uh, you know, was, I can't say it's surprising because there was a lot of doubt. Polls generally showed him ahead. Um, but the but the margins here are interesting. And, and that's been true up and down the ballot. Democrats had a really good night here in Pennsylvania. Well, Fetterman outperformed other Democrats in some rural areas and swing counties. What was working for him? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a key part of his campaign messaging. It would be like on all of their lawn signs, you know, every county, every vote. Um, and, you know, I think some of that was a kind of cultural thing. John Fetterman does not present uh, as a as a typical uh, candidate, wears a lot of car hearts and cargo shorts and things like that. Um, and, and he talked a lot about uh, working class issues, um, about bringing domestic manufacturing back, about pushing for a hike in the middle in, in, the, in the minimum wage. And I think also just sort of stylistically, um, 
um, you know, just sort of a very kind of uh, straightforward, plain spoken kind of person that people responded to. And I think that helped a lot. Now, Democrat Josh Shapiro also won the swing state's governorship over far right challenger Doug Mastriano. How big of a surprise was that? Uh, not a, not a surprise at all. This is the closest thing to a sure bet that we had going into the election. Um, he is up by about 13 percentage points. And, and surprisingly enough, the polling was actually accurate this time. That's generally where a lot of polls had kind of shown him to be, uh, you know, in the low uh, double digits. So not a surprise there. And again, a, a race that uh, was very clear very early on. We knew where that was headed. Well, Mastriano is an election denier, but he tried to backtrack and soften some of his views in the weeks leading to the midterms. Here's Republican voter Tom in Pennsylvania telling 1A producer Michelle Harbin a bit about what conservatives may be thinking there. Mainly for me, it's been the cultural issues, the uh, free speech issues on college campuses, uh, you know, Twitter, etc. I mean, and I think that the conservatives are really speaking to those issues. Doesn't mean I love Trump, but um, I don't like what's going on in the Democratic Party. Chris, what does Mastriano's defeat say, if anything, about where Philadelphia voters are right now? Well, I mean, or Pennsylvania's I, I voters, say, I should say more broadly, actually. Sure. Yeah, thanks for not ruling us out there in Pittsburgh. We have a <laughs> complex about Philadelphia. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that um, Twitter access is an issue that really resonates um, with a lot of voters across the board. And I, and I do think that up and down the ballot, you know, we saw kind of obviously – Donald Trump himself not on the ballot, but Trumpism, I think, was. Um, and, you know, in 2020, uh, Pennsylvania beat Donald Trump. In 2022, um, you know, we rejected the candidates uh, that, that he endorsed, who were both uh, Dr. Oz and uh, Doug Mastrano. But I think up and down the ballot, you saw a lot of candidates kind of speaking to those issues, not doing terribly well. Um, so, you know, speech on campus, I, you know, most of the college kids in Pittsburgh, which is a very uh, college town, you know, were lined up deep to vote for this Democratic ticket. So, you know, I, I don't think that stuff really washed in the way maybe that some Republicans thought it was going to. Reed, what do you think Mastriano's defeat says, if anything, about the success of election deniers seeking party platforms and in general about how much of a driving force that's going to be in the Republican Party moving forward? Well, I, what I think the Mastriano defeat, as well as a bunch of other candidates across the country uh, who went down to defeat last night, say is says is that candidate quality matters, and you can talk about we. There can be big national uh, themes that that favor one party or the other, or, or headwinds and tailwinds and all that. But if you have if you put a, up a candidate who people don't like. That candidate is going to have a, either a lot harder chance of taking advantage of those tailwinds or they're just going to lose. And as we looked at state after state after state, the Republican candidates in a lot of these states who were closest to Donald Trump, which means they were more likely to be election deniers than not, uh, were deeply unpopular. M- many more people saw them unfavorably than favorably. And, and take Mastriano and Attorney General and now Governor-elect Josh Shapiro as the perfect example. I mean, Shapiro's favorable ratings were in the you know the mid-50s for most of this race, and Mastriano's unfavorable ratings were in the mid-50s for most of this race. And forget all the headwinds or not, if you're an average voter going into the ballot box and you don't know who you're going to pick, 
you're probably going to vote for the guy you like rather than the guy you don't. And that has been repeated in Republican races, Republican primaries across the country this year. Uh, unpopular candidates won. And, and that extends to Mehmet Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate race and uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona. And, I mean, even candidates who might end up winning in the end, uh, they are going to win closer races than they should have because Republicans nominated a bunch of candidates who they they admitted to me last night uh, were just not the right candidates. I mean, I had a prominent Republican strategist say to me last night, they left seats on the table, and they know they did because they picked the wrong candidates in primaries. Well, Michelle in Pennsylvania writes this, For once I got just about everything I wanted in Pennsylvania. Too many firsts to mention and fantastic victories both locally and across the state. Working for progress is a fantastic way to live among good companions. I highly recommend it. Chris, any other big takeaways from Pennsylvania? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly speak to in southwestern Pennsylvania. I think some of your um, correspondents have been have been speaking to this. I've been a reporter for about 25 years. And for a lot of that period, southwestern Pennsylvania was kind of an old boys network politically, a lot of white males who tended to skew more conservative on social issues, even if they were, uh, you know, more progressive on union stuff. In, in the past five years, the complexion, the makeup of our delegation to Harrisburg has changed. You mentioned earlier Summer Lee, the first black woman uh, to represent Pennsylvania in Congress, elected from here in Pittsburgh. Um, we had a number of firsts. Uh, Josh Shapiro's running mate, Austin Davis, a kid from McKeesport, will be the first black Lieutenant Governor, also from Southwestern Pennsylvania. So we are really seeing here in South in the Southwest a real change, at least around Allegheny County. Some of the some of the counties outline, um, you know, very much remain Trump country. But we are seeing a new kind of Democratic Party take root here in the, in the West. Um, and it has been just a fascinating story for my career because, as I say, uh, it's really only taken root in the past five years, and now it's having effects at the federal level and statewide. That's Chris Potter. He's the government editor with WESA in Pennsylvania. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And now let's turn to Florida, which stayed ruby red. Governor Ron DeSantis was re-elected landslide over Democrat Charlie Chris. Now, thanks to the overwhelming support of the people of Florida, we not only won election, we have rewritten the political map. Thank you for honoring us with a win for the ages. And Senator Marco Rubio held on to his seat despite a challenge from Democratic Representative Val Demings. Here to tell us more is Veronica Zaragovia from WLRN in Miami. Veronica, it's always great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So any big surprises in Florida? Yeah, you know, what was a big surprise was that some of the counties that have been traditionally blue voted uh, Republican last night, and that includes Miami-Dade County, which um, voted for the majority of votes for the governor's race went to Governor Ron DeSantis, and also Palm Beach County. These are traditionally blue, majority blue counties, and so that was a big uh, surprise and uh, says a lot about um, politics in in South Florida and in the state in in elections to come. Well, you spoke with several voters around Miami-Dade County, including Juan Guerrero. He was at an event for Marco Rubio. 
Juan says, quote, the elephant is slow but crushing, and we Republicans are triumphant today, but the party offers is morals, law and order, border control, and the economy, not the disaster we're living in right now. Uh, Veronica, how has the Republican Party successfully courted such a diverse range of Latino voters over the past two election cycles in Florida? Well, one thing, the uh, even all uh, Democratic candidates who lost their bids for election even uh, mentioned that Republicans had a huge voter turnout, a uh, voter registration, sorry, lead against Democrats. And they've put a lot of money and a lot of time. They've been very present. And um, their message has been very clear. And there's, of course, a Spanish language radio um, here in South Florida that has been um, also very effective with Latino voters. And so uh, the Democratic Party, however, wasn't uh, has been criticized for not really having a message, for not really knocking on doors, for not doing um, as much as the Republican Party did. We got this message from one of you. It really sucked in Florida, especially in Orange County, where the penny tax for transportation infrastructure was voted down. Central Florida does not have sustainable infrastructure for cars, and the issue is going to get worse in the next decade. What were some of the big issues, Veronica, on the ballot other than these specific races? Well, some of the, the big issues, I would say, are people that you know, voters who I spoke to are kept mentioning that gas prices are so expensive, that life is just so expensive here, uh, has gone in, and they blame the, the Democratic Party for that, whether, you know, really um, the Biden administration is at fault or not. It's something that, given that the Democrats are in power during this midterm, that really hurt those candidates. Um, people I spoke to said that they were pleased that transgender children in Florida will be barred from receiving hormones or undergoing surgeries to treat gender dysphoria. That became a big issue that voters spoke to me about. Um, And also, I guess one other thing, even if it's not really present at the moment, um, Governor Ron DeSantis touted his Florida stance against federal directives when it came to COVID-19 during the pandemic. And I think a a lot of those issues really helped um, voters their ballots for Republican candidates. Now, it's no secret DeSantis is eyeing a 2024 presidential bid, but former President Donald Trump has threatened to reveal unspecified but presumably unflattering information about him if he chooses to run. Veronica, what's your read on how likely DeSantis is to challenge Trump for the GOP nod? I think it seemed quite likely, given that, for instance, his election party was at the Tampa Convention Center. It's a very large space. He talked about how Florida was on the right path despite failing leadership in Washington. And so it seems like, you know, and he wouldn't answer that question when his opponent, uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidate Charlie Crist, asked him if he would uh, fill, you know, finish his four-year term if reelected, and uh, Governor DeSantis wouldn't answer. And also, you know, as you mentioned, former President Trump has given him a new nickname, Ron DeSanctimonious, and and I think um, former President Trump does that when he feels there's uh, competition. So it seems pretty likely. And voters even said across Florida that they would prefer he stays in Florida, but would support DeSantis if he runs for president. Very briefly, Veronica, looking at the Rubio-Demings race, any big takeaways there for you? Yeah, well, the one, ma- one big issue was that 
Representative Demings was not so well known in South Florida. Uh, Marco Rubio has been uh, senator since he got elected in 2010. He's a Cuban-American, speaks Spanish, and he, he really um, had that advantage of his name here in South Florida. And also, um, he, he was casting... Val Demings as, as radical on abortion. And what ended up happening is that the Democratic candidates were hoping that abortion restrictions and the SCOTUS decision to overturn Roe versus Wade in June, that that would mobilize a lot of their voter base. And it just wasn't enough. Um, they, I mean, really, uh, he cru Rubio crushed Val Demings in, in this election. And so um, that, that was, and, and he did speak last night in his election uh, speech about how the working class and middle class person in the United States has been left behind and that Democrats couldn't connect to working class voters and that the Republican Party, you know, he mentioned that he was the son of, of parents who had worked at hotels and that thanks to his opportunities in the U.S., he was able to pursue a career in politics. And so um, it seemed like that was the, the message that he was going on um, for, in his uh, speech. Well, Reed, Florida has historically been considered a swing state, but we've seen several election cycles of solidly Republican uh, wins. But I just want you to contextualize what we saw in Florida yesterday with the way the state's maps have been redrawn. Yeah, Florida scared a lot of Democrats last night. Uh, the turnout looked like Democratic turnout was falling through the table and uh, through, the, through the floor. And Florida is typically the first big state that starts reporting. So Democrats were really worried that they were going to see the same thing in every other state and that they were headed for that red wave. Um, in terms of the number of districts that have been redrawn, remember congressional district maps were drawn by Governor Ron DeSantis and, and in an unprecedented uh, takeover of the state's remapping process. And he drew a lot of those maps as we talked about Congressman Al Lawson losing his re-election bid against a fellow uh, incumbent uh, Republican. Um, he drew a lot of those maps to maximize Republican gains. On the other hand, uh, Republicans and Democrats in the state legislature agreed on legislative maps uh, that, uh, that, that uh, for the, the decade ahead, and Republicans still made gains. So in Florida, I, I think Florida is on the path that Ohio was on 10 years ago. This is a former swing state that's becoming a red state. We're here with Reed Wilson of Pluribus News. We've also spoken to Veronica Zaragovia with WLRN in Miami, Florida. Veronica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a big night for incumbent Democrats in Michigan, and that's where we head next. Lori tweets, Democrats won both houses in Michigan. Now we're in power to really get something done for the people of Michigan. First time in 40 years. It's our election roundup recorded at KUT in Austin, Texas. We're stationed here for the 2022 midterm elections. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. We've checked in on the East and the South. Let's head to the Midwest, specifically Michigan. Alice emails, as a woman in Michigan, I am elated that I woke up with as many rights as I went to bed with last night. I'm proud that my state led by a strong woman and amazed to see our legislature flip, breaking a 40-year streak. And Bruce emails, the vote in Michigan shows what fear redistricting can do to change a state legislature. Michigan now has a state legislature that is Democratic for the first time since 1984 and will properly reflect the demographics of the state. Thanks to Michigan voters in 2018 for establishing a redistricting commission. We actually 
actually did a show on that commission. You can find that conversation at the 1A.org if you're interested. We'll also tweet out a link at 1A. So several Democratic incumbents hung on to their seats in Michigan despite some tough challenges from the right. And that includes Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And the prospect of leading this state for four more years is something for which we are incredibly grateful and excited about. And regardless of who is in office, we will always work with anyone who actually wants to solve a problem because there's nothing more important than the people of this state to us. Zoe Clark is Michigan Radio's program director. Zoe, it's always great to have you. Hi, Jen. Good to be here. So let's jump right in. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Representative Alyssa Slotkin, and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson all managed to survive GOP challenges last night. How close were some of these races? You know, I got to say, not that close, (laughs) at Mm. least in the statewide races, including uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel winning re-election. Alyssa Slotkin in the new 7th Congressional District was more of the close, uh, or again, that's a congressional district, not statewide. Uh, Interesting to note, though, she really ran as a Democrat, but sort of against the Democratic Party. She's considered sort of a moderate uh, a representative from Michigan, and she's someone that actually voted present in the last uh, vote for Nancy Pelosi to be speaker. Now, Democrat Hillary Shulton also won a House seat long held by the GOP, including by ousted Republican Peter Meyer. Now, he's a moderate Republican who voted to impeach former President Trump. And so this is one of those races where Democrats funded Meyer's far right opponent in the primary. Explain that strategy. Right, they did. This was John Gibbs, who again lost to Democrat Hillary Skolton last night. He is a former Donald Trump official, had the former president's uh, endorsement, and he beat Republican Peter Meyer, as you noted, the incumbent back in the August primary. And the DCCC put money, right, trying to kind of have him win, thinking that he was the more beatable candidate. They got a lot of um, fire for that decision, right, among the country, thinking this was not an appropriate thing to do. But alas, uh, again, Democrat Hillary Skolton winning this seat the first time in decades in Michigan that a Democrat will represent this uh, part of Michigan and the first time that a woman will. Well, and just just lay out for us the significance of the switch in Michigan's state legislature. Oh, I mean, it's huge, Jen. It's historic. I can tell you that for nearly four decades, um, this this has not happened. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks in Michigan are waking up feeling like, in some respects, this is a new state. I can tell you as you know, a political journalist, it's figuring out a, a new normal about how to cover Michigan because you know the state house, the state senate, and the chief executive, all Democrat, again, has not happened in my entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now, Michigan voters uh, voted to have a nonpartisan redistricting commission do the work of drawing maps. How much does that play into the results we saw last night? Right. I mean, and this is the first time we're seeing those results because voters approved that independent commission in 2018. Of course, then the census happened in 2020. And so these are these new maps. And 
So a lot of the questions going into last night was like, look, these are new voters in some new districts. So we can look historically back about what we might know. But again, these were new maps. And I think you're fundamentally seeing that there was a dramatic change. Again, when you have one chamber being represented by a party for nearly four decades and having that come to an end, you have to look at the maps and redistricting and say that had something to do with it. Now, there were also really big questions on the Michigan ballot vis-a-vis abortion rights, voting rights that also had to do with turnout and it turning into a, a Democratic win overall in Michigan. Now, Stephanie emails, I'm overjoyed that Prop 3 has passed in Michigan. I'm thinking about starting a family and having access to full reproductive care, which includes abortion in case of an emergency and will make the process so much safer. Zoe, how wide was the margin on that abortion measure? Yeah, I mean, we are looking really, I mean, we were thinking it was going to be closer than it was. And in the end, a a vast majority of Michiganders came out and voted in favor of enshrining abortion rights into the state constitution. And I think that really helped propel as we're talking about this democratic wave. We saw a lot of young voters coming out and turning out lines outside of the University of Michigan and Michigan State University. Students coming out and saying that they felt like they were voting to protect rights that they believe they should have. Well, California, Michigan, and Vermont all enshrined abortion rights in their state constitutions on Tuesday. In Kentucky, voters rejected a proposal that would have preemptively blocked state constitutional protections for abortion rights. I mean, Reed, what role did abortion end up playing in the midterms? Bigger than we expected. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I I think for a long time we all expected or or many of us thought that the uh, the abortion issue after the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade uh, was a boon to Democrats but for how long. And especially as uh, the economic outlook worsened, it it looked like the Democratic advantage uh, on abortion rights was fading a bit. But the exit polls last night and the results that you just talked about, not just in, you know, very blue California. California and Vermont, and very purple Michigan, but in very red Kentucky, uh, as well as the exits, uh, showed that voters cared about abortion uh, and and still not just cared about it, but called it a top issue. And among those who called it a top issue, Democrats won uh, a substantial plurality or a substantial majority, excuse me. And uh, and this I mean this turned out to be a lasting issue that energized voters. And you know I, I think to her point about the lines at the University of Michigan, and, and we saw those same lines. Uh, at, at schools across the country. Um, this this turned out to be something that, that voters really cared about, and it stuck with them. It, it, and it has stuck with them since the Supreme Court ruling came out. You know, we always say that a week is an eternity in politics. Well, it's been more than a few weeks, uh, but this was something that voters really stuck with and, and rewarded Democrats for their outspokenness on abortion. Remember, the vast majority of Democratic candidates were running very heavy ads uh, on uh, abortion rights issues, uh, even as more voters were telling pre-election pollsters that they cared about things like economy and, and, and inflation. Well, Zoe, before we let you go, I want to touch on that ballot, me- ballot measure that expands uh, voting access in Michigan. What will it do exactly and how important is it? Oh, it's huge. So this will enshrine voting rights into the state constitution. Uh, this enshrines rights like the the need, although that you can, if you forget your uh, ID, let's say at the ballot, that's okay. You can still uh, vote. You just will show it later. Uh, nine early days of voting here in Michigan. Um, 
And so this is fundamentally going to change, much like we were talking about earlier, redistricting uh, and how that changed in 2018. This is fundamentally going to change the way that Michiganders are able to vote and access voting in future elections here in the state. That's Zoe Clark. She's politics director at Michigan Radio. Zoe, thanks for joining us. Great talking to you, Jen. And Reed Wilson is sticking with us. He's editor-in-chief at Pluribus News. And Reed, really quickly before we go to our next guest, there's some news about a Democratic House seat in New York. What's the latest? That's right. I, I told you about the uh, f- relatively small numbers of incumbents who've lost. One who did lose and who's just called to concede his Republican to his Republican opponent is Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York. He is the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. It's amazing. Even if Democrats have the uh, very good night that it looks like they did, they suffer this embarrassment of a member of their own leadership. In fact, the guy whose job it was to protect the Democratic majority is now one of the victims of last night's vote. Well, let's check in on one more state and another Republican win. J.D. Vance is headed to the Senate after defeating Democratic Representative Tim Ryan. We've been given an opportunity to do something, and that's to govern. And to govern to make the lives of the people of Ohio better, that's exactly what I aim to do. And because of you, I get a chance to do it. While Levi tweets, disappointed that Mike DeWine and J.D. Vance won, but Landsman winning gives me hope and allows me to feel like I'm not crazy. Bobby emails, I like Mike DeWine, but oh my God, we're stuck with J.D. I'm not interested in Ukraine Vance. Let's turn now to Karen Kassler, the State House Bureau Chief at Ohio Public Radio. Karen, it's great to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. So talk about Vance's victory here. Any surprises? I think anybody who's surprised has not been watching Ohio for the last couple of election cycles. I mean, Donald Trump won Ohio by eight points in 2016 and in 2020. It's about 450,000 votes he won by in 2020. And so that really shaped Tim Ryan's campaign. As a Democrat, he knew he needed to get some of those Republican voters. So he went after moderate voters. He went after frustrated Trump voters. He really went into more of the rural areas of Ohio. That potentially left some of the urban areas of Ohio not campaigned in. And some of the Voter turnout was low in those areas, and, and that really did show. Of course, DeWine winning the governor's race, and DeWine's a 40-year uh, fixture in Ohio politics. He dragged a lot of the other Republicans on the ticket with him. He may have been giving a boost to J.D. Vance as well. And, of course, Donald Trump, too. I mean, Donald Trump was here three times in the last year, once to endorse J.D. Vance before the primary and twice before the election, including the night before the election. Now, Reed, Vance is arguably one of the most prominent election denier Republicans to make their way to Congress. What should we watch from him and from those election deniers who were elected? Well, I think Vance is part of a new vanguard of uh, sort of call them neo-neoconservatives. I don't know. They're they're a new generation of the Republican Party, along with people like Josh Hawley uh, from Missouri and, uh, and, you know, Blake Masters from Arizona, uh, if he ends up pulling that race out. Um, These are younger, more populists. They're they're Donald Trump minus 20 or 30 years. Uh, And I think that's what what they will bring to the United States Senate. Um, This also goes back to my earlier point about uh, candidates who are deeply unpopular, even 
if they win. You know, Mike DeWine, hugely popular governor, he won 63 to 37. J.D. Vance, not so popular. His unfavorable ratings were higher than his favorable ratings. He won 53 to 47. That's J.D. Vance ran 10 points behind Mike DeWine. I feel like if Republicans had run a lot more Mike DeWines this year across the country, we would be having a very different conversation this morning. Karen, you said anyone surprised by Vance's victory hasn't been watching Ohio very closely. I mean, what big takeaways are you seeing from the midterms? Well, I I think Reed even kind of referenced this earlier when talking about Florida. This is kind of the trajectory that Ohio has been on for a while. I mean, Republicans have dominated these midterm elections since 1994, with the exception of 2006, which was a wave year for Democrats. But I think it's interesting to follow this and, and really consider it in the context of Ohio being a swing state or a bellwether. And it sure looks like Ohio's lost some of that designation as either a swing state or a bellwether. But what's interesting, too, here is that Ohio actually gained uh, Democrats in its congressional delegation. We Our congressional delegation shrunk from 16 to 15, and we have maps that the candidates were running that were considered unconstitutionally gerrymandered by the Ohio Supreme Court, and yet five Democrats won out of those 15, and that was really unexpected and, and kind of a surprise. All right, Karen, thanks for that analysis. We appreciate it. That's Karen Kassler, the State House Bureau Chief at Ohio Public Radio. Karen, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks. Want to get to some more comments from you. David in Tennessee tweets, the results are what we expected, sadly enough. But then if no one looks at how Republicans redrew the districts to disenfranchise Democrats, it's not a surprise. Katrina in Maryland writes, although I was thrilled by Westmore's win for governor, I was again disappointed by the reelection of Representative Andy Harris, an election denier and official who does nothing positive for Maryland's first district. And Jay tweets, I am disheartened about the number of Trump supporters and enablers who have been reelected, including Senator Ron Johnson in my state of Wisconsin. I truly fear for our country if that wing of the Republican Party is able to seize control of one or both houses. You know, Reed, we still have some outstanding uh, election results where we're waiting for that will decide the balance of power in Congress. But when you look at who Republicans put up this midterm election, what decisions are they going to have to make moving forward about <laughs> which candidates they choose and who's electable? Well, in the more immediate future, I'm interested in who is going to actually control Congress. Uh, It looks likely that Republicans will win a majority in the U.S. House by a small margin, somewhere between 220 and 225 seats. You need 218 for a majority. If their majority is really that small, that means that a small number of very conservative members, people like Jim Jordan, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are going to have enormous leverage over the likely House Speaker, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, If he becomes the next speaker, is he going to be uh, effectively uh, controlled by that small majority, a small minority of very conservative members? And if he is, that's going to impact uh, who the Republicans put them put their money behind uh, in 2024. I mean, this their small margin of control is almost the worst thing that could happen uh, to Kevin McCarthy in this instance because his power is going to be dependent on the most conservative uh, parts of his Republican conference who are, in a broader sense, the most unelectable people uh, in the swing districts that his majority depends on. And very briefly, as we wait for these final results to come in, we, we likely won't know what happens in the Senate 
until sometime in December, right? Give us a a timeline we should follow here. Well, if Democrats uh, pull out victories in Arizona and Nevada, they will have won at least 50 seats, which means they'll maintain control. If one of those Democratic senators loses, then Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are likely headed to a December 5th runoff uh, in Georgia. And Jen, I will see you in Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) That's Reed Wilson. He's the editor-in-chief at Pluribus News. Reed, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Jen. Today's producers were Paige Osborne with help from Arfi Getty, Chris Remington, and the rest of the 1A team. You're listening to the 1A podcast recorded at KUT in Austin. Stay with us. We've got a lot more of our election roundup coming up in just a moment. I'm Jen White. Let's get into more of our election roundup. Midterm voting is over and ballots are still being counted across the country. We don't know which party will control the House or the Senate, but we do have key results in some closely contested elections in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Virginia. Because of the way ballots are counted in each state, we're still waiting for some results and that is perfectly normal. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Washington Post national political reporter Eugene Scott. Eugene, glad to have you with us today. Glad to be here. Also with us from Washington, D.C. is NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Ron, welcome back. Good to be with you, Jen. So we don't know which party will control the House, but Republicans didn't see the wave of support they expected. Eugene, what happened? Well, I think there are a few things. Uh, The reality is abortion was more of a concern uh, for voters, especially on the left, than I think uh, Republicans thought it would be. Uh, They certainly thought their message on inflation would win more independents and maybe even more Democrats than than actually happened. But abortion just really did end up being one of the top uh, concerns and motivated Democratic voters, voters to the polls. Actually, let's go to the phones. We've got Benjamin on the line in Toledo, Ohio. And Benjamin, you say you think abortion rights played a key role in the midterms. How did that show up in your state? Um, Well, actually, uh, I'm I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. uh, But I did see a lot of uh, people who were very, very motivated after the Dobbs decision and and got very active with organizations that are uh, pro-choice. So I I do think that this was a Rovember, as as they termed it. Um, the question I had for you all was, um, to what extent do you think that the uh, uh, the layoffs at Twitter by Elon Musk or the attack on uh, Speaker Pelosi's husband, an 82-year-old man, uh, had an influence on people? Because here uh, in uh, Charlottesville, the comment I heard about the layoffs at Elon Musk was that that was a really wrong thing to do three weeks before Thanksgiving. And I just wondered if those might have been some of the things that acted since he did come out in support of the Republicans. Benjamin, thanks for those questions. Ron, let's take one at a time. We all have a lot of questions about what's happening with Twitter and Elon Musk. Do you think that played any role in the midterms? It's hard to say. There certainly could have been an atmospheric effect because Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and his announcements with regard to politics, his relationship to some Republicans has identified him to some degree with the Republican Party. Uh, What's going on at Twitter? What's going on at Meta for that reason where they're announcing layoffs again today? Um, That is probably a little bit 
south of the inflation issue, abortion issue, crime issue, some of the other things that were at play here. At the same time, you hate to dismiss anything when you're trying to explain results that were not entirely expected. In this particular case, clearly Republicans are underperforming expectations, uh, particularly in certain states, uh, particularly where President, former President Trump played a big role. So there may be a lot of different thumbs on the scales here, and we're going to have to sort out a lot of exit polls and other data to try to figure out how much people's mood might have been changed by the attack on Paul Pelosi or how much it might have been changed by what's going on at Twitter. Now, we may not know who controls the Senate or the House for weeks, but ultimately, Eugene, which states will decide how this all plays out? Well, when it comes to the Senate right now, uh, we're looking at Nevada, Arizona and Georgia. These are races that have not yet been called and that are incredibly tight. And how they turn out will certainly determine who gets to control the Senate. And what about in the House? Well, um, Republicans are expected to have control of the House. It won't be the red wave uh, that they were expecting, but uh, the majority that they uh, were hoping they would have um, in terms of numbers doesn't look like it, it's definitely going to happen. And, and that certainly is going to determine what type of you know, legislation they're going to be able to put forward. Well, Ron, that, that's going to leave Republicans likely with a very slim margin in the House. So what does that mean for House Republican House leadership moving forward? Uh, likely Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy was passed over once before when the job of Speaker of the House was open, and they went hunting for somebody else and got Paul Ryan to do the job for a couple of years. Uh, that was supposed to be Kevin McCarthy's automatic promotion. It didn't happen because he said some impolitic things that hurt the party's messaging. Uh, this time around, he has been much more tone perfect, saying the things the party wanted him to say, staying friendly with Donald Trump, trying to hold together the Republican coalition, keeping the focus on Biden and the Democrats. So you really can't fault his performance over the last year. However, this is too much of a disappointment not to have some sort of impact. There are other ambitious people in the leadership on the Republican side. And he has, at crucial moments, occasionally in the past, uh, had a tendency to slip a bit in terms of messaging for the party. That is a memory that people aren't going to erase. And here's the big problem. The big problem is that to be elected speaker, you need more than a majority of your own party. That's enough to be minority leader, but it is not enough to be speaker. You need to have 218 votes. You have to have a absolute majority of all the members of the House. And that means he's going to have to get virtually every Republican, save maybe half a dozen or so. And that could be very difficult for him to do if someone else can organize an opposition against him. And and when you're looking at the results from the House elections, the seats that we know have been decided, what kind of breakdown are you seeing within the Republican Party itself? Who is he going to have to court? He's probably going to be okay with any candidate he recruited because traditionally people who have been personally recruited by a leader uh, tend to vote for that person to be leader when they get to Washington. Uh, most of the candidates that are winning are going to be people who feel pretty good about Kevin McCarthy because he endorsed them, because he supported them, helped them raise money. Uh, but uh, among the people who are already in Washington, there are people who would prefer a harder edge. 
And that is not necessarily on policy at all. It's just a personality thing. There might be people who prefer Jim Jordan of Ohio, who's a much more aggressive conservative. Some people might prefer Steve Scalise, who is the number two person in Republican leadership from Louisiana. He has a heroic personal story having survived a shooting. And that is that is a factor in thinking about how important this person is going to be. If the Democrats do hold on in the Senate, which is still a toss-up, but if the Democrats hold on in the Senate, whoever is the Speaker of the House, that Republican is going to be arguably the spokesperson for the entire Republican Party for the next two years until we have a presidential nominee for them in 2024. So that's a big job, and there are going to be those who don't think Kevin McCarthy is that guy. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Zachary on the line from Virginia. Zachary, you're a GOP voter. What do you think of the midterms, how things are turning out? I am, yeah. So I'm a 27-year-old. I live in the mountains of Virginia, conservative voter. Um, And I think just really disappointed at a missed opportunity for our party. I think that the messaging... If we, one thing that I think we saw last night, especially here in Virginia, you know, as someone who may not be a supporter of Abigail Sandberger, but you see someone who really has worked to step across the aisle. Um, and in Virginia, that works. I'm a huge fan of our governor. I think Glenn Youngkin would also be a phenomenal candidate in 2024. Uh, but one of the things that I think we saw last night is that extremism doesn't work on both sides. And so one of the things, uh, personal opinion as a pro-life voter, as a, as a Christian voter, um, we really need to have a conversation as a nation about especially third trimester abortions. And so we have people on each side of the very extreme conversation. Um, But I didn't hear anything this cycle about, you know, protecting life in the womb in the third trimester. And I think that that's a place that we really could come as a nation um, on both sides when you look at polling of voters who don't support abortions in the third trimester. So I just think some of the messaging on both sides, I think also I am concerned (laughs) about the slim majority that Republicans will have in Congress. I was hoping for a red wave also so that some of those extreme voices didn't really have a say. Uh, You know, if we had 245, 250 seats in the House, um, it would have allowed some of those voices to just stay off on the fringe and really not have a microphone. And you mean extreme voices in the GOP? You mean extreme voices in the GOP? Okay. Zachary, thanks so much for that call. Uh, Let's start with with the the end of Zachary's uh, point about his hope for a red wave and what that would mean for the more, um, what he thinks are, are extreme elements of the GOP. Eugene, I mean, what does this mean for the Republican Party and what they're able to get done in Congress or or who they have to, I guess, bring into the fold or compromise with if they're concerned about more extremist elements in the party? Well, I hear his point, but had there been a red wave, it would have been because of the extreme voices. Uh, It would have been wins among some of these Trump-endorsed candidates uh, who actually did not win. Uh, So um, there wouldn't have been a way for the moderate Republicans to have the amount of power over Trump-endorsed Republicans to make the party as a whole, uh, you know, a bit more mainstream. Uh, The fact that these are not the people who uh, one should indicate to the Republicans that if they want to be more successful in the future, they need to move further away from Trump. 
Well, we also heard Zachary there talk about abortions in the third trimester, and we should note that less than 1% of abortions actually happen in the third trimester. And we'll talk more about how that issue turned up in the midterms after the break. We got this message from our text club. I voted primarily Democrat. However, I did do my due diligence and researched all the candidates on the ballot. I ended up voting for two Republican candidates. I believe everyone should put some effort into finding the candidate that speaks to their needs. Now, Ron, abortion was a major sticking point for these midterms after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. Voters in California, Vermont, and Michigan decided to codify the right to an abortion in their state constitutions. How big of an impact did abortion have on these midterms? You know, I think we're going to be talking about that for years to come. I think it had an enormous impact, and we were not sure it was going to, partly because the Republicans seemed to be gaining momentum in the last couple of weeks before the election. But then right at the end, there was kind of an up tick in Democratic enthusiasm. And I think we're going to find that that had a lot to do with new registrants uh, who were primarily registering, some for the first time, because of their concern about the Dobbs decision and abortion rights. So Vermont, California, Michigan, Montana, and Kentucky all had votes, all had referenda affecting abortion rights in this election. That's a huge swath of the country, an extraordinarily varied swath of the country. Vermont, California, Michigan, Montana, and Kentucky. Not the entire country, but remarkably representative of different parts of the country. And abortion rights won out in every single one of those cases. Here's the other thing. We know that independents did something highly unusual in this election. Eugene mentioned this earlier. Independents seem to be friendlier to the Democrats than you would have expected. The last four midterms we've had, going back to 2006, 2010, 14, 18, those four midterms, independents voted against the president's party by double digits. In this election, the Democrats, the party with the White House, actually seems to have been even or maybe even a couple of points ahead among independents in our calculations thus far on the tip of the hat uh, there to um, the Cook Political Report and specifically to Amy Walter, somebody I'm always glad to tip my hat to, an excellent data point that Amy was pointing out this morning. Well, let's go back to the phones. Aminata in Wilmington, Delaware is on the line. Aminata, you're an immigrant from Sierra Leone, and this is the first time you've been excited about the the midterms. What got you excited this time? Um, it's just um, the atmosphere for the last um, four or five years has been scary. And uh, for some of us that um, came from areas that you cannot express yourself, or you cannot, um, you cannot, as a woman, have control over your body or a say in anything regarding yourself, your agency. It's just becoming scary and scary. And um, you, I'm thinking, if if you don't participate, if you don't do something about it, and then for me, there would be no country. Because I've lived here in the U.S. longer than I lived in Sierra Leone, and I, I would have nowhere to go. And um, so it was all in, and I tried to get as many people to vote as possible. I give as much as I can, especially to tight races. And because it's a, you either do something or you're going to get the system will just leave you behind, and uh, it would be unrecognizable. And for some of us, we'll have nowhere else to go. I'm this is home th- now. Aminata, thanks for that call. Eugene, listening to Aminata speak there about the stakes for her, I mean, what's your read of 
how the electorate more broadly, and I know we don't have really specific numbers on who voted and why, but what's your read on, on what drove people to the polls outside of abortion? What were the other big questions on the table? You know, one of the things that certainly drove voters to the polls and away from the Republican Party is how many uh, Republican candidates who were Trump loyalists were running to oversee their respective states' elections. And they denied the 2020 election outcome. And that was concerning to quite a few voters. They did not want Trump loyalists running elections in states. Uh, We saw that people, regardless of their voting habits or their political affiliations, aren't extremists uh, for the most part and would like to see uh, people representing them and in positions of leadership in their respective states who are more towards the center uh, than the far extremes. Well, Ron, I think this is a good time to just mention that we didn't see too many problems at the polls yesterday or in the weeks leading up to Election Day. Overall, how did voting go this midterm election? There does seem to have been a problem at some polling places in Arizona with a printer that was printing out ballots. And uh, that was dealt with. But of course, it gave those people who are looking for something to complain about, something to focus on early on. It does not seem to have had any particularly substantial effect and the results in Arizona are uh, still in question. That is to say that we don't have enough votes yet to make a call. There's something something like two-thirds of the vote has been counted. But uh, there does not seem to have been a mechanical problem of any note there. And there does not seem to have been a lot of election, uh, election interference in any part of the country where we were expecting there to be perhaps armed folks showing up to harass voters. Uh, We were told that we should expect all kinds of shenanigans that do not seem to have materialized. And and of course, we haven't heard from every every single precinct, but uh, it does not appear to have been a big deal or to have been widespread. And that is an enormous relief to people who were afraid that our elections were going to deteriorate just as a social experience, uh, from what they have traditionally been. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Lucy calling from Oklahoma. Lucy, you wanted to talk about some of your local state-level races. How are you feeling this morning? Oh, well, I'm. Um, as far as the local issues, not very good. I mean, we really, you know, Oklahoma is so red. But we really thought, I'm a progressive Democrat, and I live in a small town outside of Tulsa. And Tulsa and Oklahoma City went blue, and the rest of the state was red. And, um, you know, it's discouraging because a lot of good Democrats don't run because we do have such a red state, and it seems like a waste of money. And this time, though, we had a really good... um, candidate opposing our governor, Governor Stitt. He is, claims to be a Cherokee, but everything he does is against the tribes. The tribes donated heavily to uh, his opponent, but she didn't win. I think it was 56% to 45 which was very sad because we thought for sure that maybe this time we could get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the uh, the state superintendent of school, the schools, um, he is a real, um, very right-wing reactionary and is, you know, against any kind of 
um, true education, and they're putting all their money into the private schools. So the public schools will be in real trouble more so than they are here. And we're already 49th in education. Well, so you're, I, I, we hear there from Lucy not not feeling great about the result in, in her state. I want to go next to Dennis in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, Dennis, you supported Democratic Senate candidate Sherry Beasley, who did end up losing last night. But you're wondering about how to elect Democrats in very red states like we, we heard from Lucy there. Go ahead, Dennis. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, this is really, um, it's really anathema to me because, you know, this, you know Sherry Beasley was an absolutely fantastic candidate, Democratic candidate, and she actually ran as a moderate. Now, I'm relatively progressive, but but Sherry ran as a moderate. I think she had a, a fabulous message. And, um, you know, we have a great governor here uh, in Roy Cooper. He's doing a wonderful job. And um, I guess, I don't know when it was. I know, I guess the last Democrat we elected to the Senate was John Edwards. And I'm just trying to understand what is it going to take? And maybe your guest can comment on this. What is it going to take to um, to elect a Democrat to the Senate in uh, North Carolina? Question of uh, turnout. I thought I thought Sherry turned out the vote pretty well. Or is it just a question of um, of uh, political philosophy in this state? Uh, what do we need to do? Dennis, thanks for that call. I just want to mention here, we did a show yesterday on uh, blue islands in red states and red islands in blue states. It's worth a listen. You can find that conversation at the 1A.org. We'll also tweet out a link at 1A. But I mean, Ron, how how difficult is it uh, <laughs> in states that are either decidedly red or decidedly blue to get elected if you're on the other side of the aisle? Do these midterms tell us anything? They do. They tell us that that is part of the calcification. That's a new word that seems to be getting a lot of currency in political discussion today. Our system has some old, if you will, traces that uh, are very difficult for people to break out of. Now, we saw an African-American elected in Maryland. He is only the third African-American to be a governor of an American state in all of our history. And yes, that's right. Westmore right here in Maryland. And uh, I say right here, I'm in Washington, D.C., but I can almost see Maryland from my roof. And, and it's, 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 it's very, been, very much been a very slow process. And we've actually seen in recent years a little bit more success on the part of African-American candidates running as Republicans. So we have Tim Scott in South Carolina. We do have Raphael Warnock, a Democrat in Georgia, and he is locked in a 49-49 race with Herschel Walker. But Herschel Walker is another African-American candidate nominated by the Republicans. And they also, Republicans, had some success with House candidates that they had recruited who are African-American around the country. So that is changing slowly. But I think Sherry Beasley was, to some degree, uh, a victim of the politics of North Carolina over the length of its history, which have also held back other African-American candidates, excellent candidates in their own right, who were nominated statewide in North Carolina. Also, the reluctance of some of the popular governors in the South who could possibly win some of these Senate seats. A caller mentioned Roy Cooper in North Carolina. There's certainly one example. If those people were willing to run for the Senate rather than be governor of their state, which is a very important position, particularly in certain states, many people regard that as a much higher position than the Senate in those states. And so you're asking someone to take a step down almost and risk their governorship to run for the Senate. But if some of them were willing to do that, uh, that might help the Democrats in situations such as North Carolina. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this as as well, Eugene, especially when we think about states like like Florida that are increasingly red. Congressional maps are redrawn there um, by Governor DeSantis. Do you think it's getting more difficult to be elected in a state that is solidly red or, or solidly blue? Well, absolutely. And, I, you know, Florida and North Carolina are uh, two examples of states where, you know, the their major cities, Raleigh, Charlotte, Tallahassee, Miami, can give you a false perception of just how many uh, rural white, I'm sorry, blue collar, uh, religiously conservative voters exist in the state and they have high turnout. They're incredibly engaged in conservative media and motivated uh, to voice their politics by that. And at the end of the day, it ends up being a demographics uh, situation and the numbers are what they are. And no matter um, how large some of these urban areas may be in population, they, they just cannot compete with just how many people outside of them have been mobilized to vote against uh, what we have come to know um, as the liberal politics that show up in the urban-rural divide. Let's go to Matthew, who's actually calling about Florida, specifically Florida Democrats. Matthew, briefly, what's on your mind? Um, yeah, uh, I have relatives in Florida, and we talk politics. And, you know, Charlie Crist got absolutely destroyed in the election. He did in the, the last one. He's an ex-Republican. He's never run a race as a Democrat. There's no effort to build any sort of bench. And it seems to me that the Florida Democratic Party is feckless, incompetent, and primarily dedicated to protecting incumbents above all else. Um, and I just wanted to get your comments on the state of the Democratic Party establishment in Florida. Matthew, thanks for that call. I'll say, Ron, we spoke to a Democratic strategist earlier this year who was very critical um, of the Democratic Party's lack of ground game. In Florida, what are you hearing? I've been hearing exactly what this caller just said and what you just said, that Florida's Democratic Party is, uh, you know, AWOL. They they just did not do the job that a state party needs to do in a swing state to make it competitive. Now, we should remember that Barack Obama carried Florida twice, twice. And in 2016, it was considered very much a toss-up. And as late as 738 o'clock on election night, it looked like it could go either way. The Democrats were saying they felt pretty good about it. Of course, in the end, Donald Trump wound up winning Florida, and that was a crucial piece of his breaking up of Obama's uh, electoral college base. It was a crucial piece of his victory. And it has not been moving away from Donald Trump since, except insofar as it has stopped thinking about that direction as being Donald Trump's direction and started thinking of it as its own Governor Ron DeSantis's direction. Now, of course, Trump is a resident of Florida, takes very much credit for the existence of Ron DeSantis' governor, says he made the man by endorsing him in the Florida Republican primary four years ago. And there's a case to be made that he did help Ron DeSantis become governor very much, get him out of the House, get him into the statewide office. But now DeSantis, having won this 20-point race, Having, having established himself as a, a peer of anyone else in the Republican Party, seemingly the biggest winner in the Republican Party in this election, 
Uh, he is very much a direct threat to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is behaving as though he knows it. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Anthony with us from Philadelphia. Anthony, you're wondering what the midterm results could mean for Republicans and, and where their focus goes uh, in, the, in the coming couple of years. What's on your mind? Um, well, I was wondering with these election results, it clearly shows that a lot of people aren't buying the election fraud, all that, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I was wondering, what are the Republicans going to do now? Who's going to be, are they going to keep Trump as their face? Or are they going to get a new brand like Ron DeSantis or something like that? Anthony, thanks for that question. Eugene, what do you think? You know, that is the question, uh, looking at the results so far. And uh, if there is a pivot, it's not going to be an easy one to make uh, really quickly. The conservative media, the GOP official parties, uh, so many activist groups are very much uh, aligned with Donald Trump and his whole operation. And walking away from him uh, could be very consequential for them. And so uh, it will be fascinating to see what conclusions uh, they make, uh, considering that ultimately they do want to win in 2024. uh, But can they do it uh, without Trump? Well, and Ron, former President Donald Trump has been hinting at making a big announcement uh, very soon. Give us a better understanding of, if you can, of the calculation he may be making in light of these midterm results. One big thing to bear in mind is that Donald Trump has other things to worry about besides being the next president of the United States in 2024. He is also facing a multitude of legal involvements that could possibly include indictments by the federal government for his role in the January 6th insurrection, which was highlighted by those months of hearings by the January 6th committee in the House. Also, for the Mar-a-Lago documents, that may be the likelier indictment. And then he's going to have to deal with those indictments and potential trials over the next two years. Now, without passing any judgment about any of that, he has to think about it. And he has to have his attorneys thinking about it and his, his, his political advisors thinking about it. At the same time, uh, he has to be organizing a campaign and getting out there and participating in debates and answering questions about the legal involvements and what they might mean for his party. And he has to be contemplating these results because as, as, as the caller suggests, the election denial issue seems to have been a non-starter. It does not seem to have done much beyond the Republican primaries. So we saw people nominated for governor in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Maryland and other places denying the result of the 2020 election and absolutely towing the Donald Trump line. Those people did not win. Those people did not win races that might have been winnable by another Republican. Some people would say we're clearly winnable by another Republican. So if the election denial issue is dead and Donald Trump cannot continue basically banging away on that particular gong, what is the theme of his next campaign and how does he convince people he looks better than a guy that just got reelected governor by 20 points? Well, let's go back to the phones. We know we've got some outstanding races we're still watching that haven't been called yet. But Brian is on the line. And Brian, you have you have a procedural question about election results. Go ahead. Yeah, say good morning. Thank you. I was just kind of wondering, um, while watching the election last night, some of the races were able to be called with only 11 or 12 percent 
of the votes in, whereas some races still today with 83 percent of the votes in haven't been able to be called. I'm kind of curious why why that happens. Brian, that's a great question. And Ron, I'm going to come to you because um, NPR follows the AP and um, the AP has a specific way it decides how it calls races. Can you explain that procedure for us? The Associated Press's procedure is quite conservative and cautious. The Associated Press does not care whether or not it's the first news organization to call a particular race. It rarely is. Uh, The Associated Press tries to wait until the vote that is outstanding is clearly indicated to be uh, in the favor of the lead candidate. So if the leading candidate has uh, 47% of the vote and the closest candidate has 46 and it looks like it's so close that you couldn't possibly call it, it might also be that the leading candidate is the leading candidate in results in from certain parts of a state, say the metropolitan parts or the non-metropolitan parts. Either way, if clearly they are going to be anticipating expanding that lead, then a news organization might choose to make a prediction at that point. Now, usually they wouldn't do it in a one-point race. For example, in Wisconsin, everybody's been very hesitant to call that for Ron Johnson, the incumbent Republican senator, even though uh, I don't think anyone really expects that uh, total to change or that percentage to change. But because it's so narrow, just about 1%, everyone's been very hesitant to call it. And AP is more cautious than most. We got this email from Norma, who says, as someone who lived through 18% interest rates in the 80s, inflation didn't frighten me as much as, quote unquote, stolen elections and loss of women's rights. And another of you emailed this, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the moderate voices in both parties. Have they been drowned out? Are they still present? Eugene? I certainly don't think they've been drowned out. I mean, heading into this midterm election, um, the squad, uh, there wasn't as much copy and print about their comments and uh, their vision for the party as a whole. In part, I think, because uh, there was some awareness within the Democratic Party that uh, the appetite for the more left politics uh, that come with the more progressive wing of the party were not um, that popular right now. And so uh, the moderate voices in the Democratic Party, I think, I think had quite a bit of influence this uh, go around. In terms of the right, I mean, the more extreme voices on the right were incredibly vocal uh, and, and they lost many of them. Uh, and, and I think uh, that is a message to the Republican Party in terms of what it is that the electorate is actually interested in. Ron, when it comes to Democrats and and who showed up to vote for them in these midterms, let's talk about younger voters right now and and what's motivating them to show up. Uh, By and large, midterm elections uh, have a lower turnout than presidential elections. And the people who tend not to vote so much in midterms are usually younger people, people of color. And that has hurt the Democrats in the past. It appears at this juncture that there was a stronger turnout among young people, certainly among people of color, than historically has been the case. Now, I haven't seen the final turnout numbers on this, but this was a healthy turnout at the very least in midterm terms. We saw that in 2018. We did not see it in 2014. We had very poor turnout, under 40 percent in 2018, but it was up at about 50 percent, which is historically high in 2018. And this one was closer to the latter. And that, I believe, reflects a certain amount of continued involvement by younger voters. And um, they may or may not have been primarily 
motivated by economic issues. I think many younger people are finding it extremely difficult to get a foothold in this economy, largely because of inflation, but even before that, because of high housing prices. And even if people can get jobs, that doesn't necessarily solve all their economic concerns. Abortion, I think, also was a big driver for younger voters uh, to get out and get involved. But we should also mention that the first Gen Z Congress member uh, was elected this time around, Maxwell Frost, um, in Florida's 10th congressional district. So, Eugene, now we have this dynamic where Gen Z isn't just adding to the polls, they're starting to take office. Indeed. Uh, And one of the things that's, I think, really important to uh, pay attention to moving forward is Gen Z, largely, it's not accounted for in our pre-election polling. Most of the polling that uh, gave us some sense of what could happen uh, didn't factor in voters under 30, uh, in part because these are not individuals who tend to pick up phones or even, you know, click links in text messages that could give some indication of how they want to engage. And so... um, uh, to the point about this young voters uh, having more power and influence um, and now and in future elections, I think could certainly shift how the parties decide to engage these uh, voters instead of ignoring them, which was probably the case maybe, you know, pre-2010. Ron, your thoughts? I do think that the Democrats need to continue to keep their emphasis on the concerns of people who are on the outs in terms of the economy. Now, that includes younger people, but it also includes a great number of other people, perhaps in uh, less metropolitan or outside the metropolitan areas, that have felt as though the country has left them behind. The Democratic Party has been strongest historically, let's just talk about the last, say, 100, 150 years, when it has identified itself with the people who have less and with their aspirations and their belief in how they would get a better economic security. So if that were, if that implies people who are just getting started in the economy, which are, would be included in it, that's a good focus. Uh, the, the, uh, the emphasis on student debt, for example, is a place where the Democratic Party showed concern and had a policy that would do something concrete to help younger people be able to get a foothold in the economy. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Cindy on the line from Florida. Cindy, you have some thoughts about Ron DeSantis, who won the governorship in Florida in a landslide. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, I think that if you want to know what happens post-Trump, you can see that the corporate and the oligarch money has already shifted to DeSantis and has been over the last couple of years. And he's a more palatable racist than than Trump and is also still getting the base. Uh, you know, people with swastikas show up at his events, and we've seen the shift in Florida, and it's, it's been pretty scary. But I want to remind people what's actually happening in Florida, which, which is that our public schools are being decimated, our housing is in major crisis, and Ron's not doing anything about any of that. Cindy, thanks for that call. So Cindy, clearly not a DeSantis supporter, but you know we talked about what President, Tr- former President Trump, uh, plans to do uh, for 2024. But I mean, Eugene, DeSantis has not said outright that he plans to make a run for the Oval Office, but he hasn't not said it either. He hasn't, and there's been some reporting that has suggested that if Trump 
runs that DeSantis will not. But that was before last night. And I'm very interested in seeing how uh, the results of uh, the midterm elections could uh, cause both teams to recalculate what it is uh, that they want to do moving forward. Ultimately, uh, DeSantis' profile has uh, you know, raised and Democrats will be targeting uh, him and trying to do a better job of uh, painting the the caricature or making a caricature out of him uh, for voters who are less familiar with him because he does have a target on his back now um, and uh, they want to make sure that he does not uh, carry the success that he has experienced last night with him into 2024. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Jim in Ohio. Now, Jim, you supported Tim Ryan, who lost his Senate bid to J.D. Vance. What's on your mind in light of those results? Well, yes, I did support him. But of course, for the for the folks that aren't in Ohio, you know, Tim Ryan's very experienced. J.D. Vance had no government experience, not even at a, at a local level. Uh, they both very interestingly, as a lot of folks know, the, the um, union membership and industrial base uh, in Ohio has has sunk in the last 20, 25 or 30 years. And they both appealed to the common man. Uh, Tim Ryan was uh, seated in a bar uh, and throwing darts and drinking a beer. And J.D. Vance grew a beard and uh, started wearing flannel shirts around and things. And it was interesting that that in a state that has had that that sort of uh, backward motion, retrograde in in industry until very recently, that they both went for the common man and uh, sort of the factory worker image. And I think that was interesting. Jim, thanks for that call. Ron, any thoughts? Many Democrats have been saying that Tim Ryan ran exactly the campaign Democrats ought to be running in order to get back into the good graces of voters in non-metropolitan Ohio, uh, people who have felt left behind, counties where all kinds of of uh, social negatives such as high opioid use, high rates of suicide have spiked in recent years as industries have moved out. The Democrats need to be talking to those people and talking for those people and that that's really where the emphasis ought to be and not so much on social issues, not so much on the things that motivate college-educated voters. And that, I think, was borne out by Tim Ryan's strong campaign. It wasn't strong enough to overcome Ohio's current Bent, which is very strongly Republican. Uh, he won by six or seven or eight points. But Mike DeWine, who's a more traditional Republican, who's been around for quite a while, won by over 20 points in the, in the Republican gubernatorial race. So I think Tim Ryan's campaign had a lot to do with that difference, that he held down what would otherwise have been a Republican candidate's margin for the Senate as well, and that that points to what the Democrats need to be doing in Florida and lots of other places as well. We're still watching some races that will decide the balance of power in Congress. Eugenia, just a sentence or two. What should we keep in mind while we all patiently wait for all the ballots to be counted? Just that, you know, the fact that this process is not one that uh, will always be clear in every race overnight. And that election day for many of us uh, is actually election week. Ron, anything to add? Just that this sets up a very interesting dynamic for 2024 in both parties, where the leaders from the last presidential election might very well not be the nominees in 2024. That's NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Also with us today, Washington Post national political reporter Eugene Scott. Ron, Eugene, thanks to you both. 
Remember, because of the way the ballots are counted in each state, once again, we won't know all the results right away, and that's perfectly normal. So stay tuned to your NPR station in the days and weeks ahead for ongoing coverage. Today's producers were Amanda Williams with help from Chris Remington and Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.